You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the podcast. Today, we're talking about the Jesus of archaeology, and we're talking about that with Jody Magnus, who teaches early Judaism at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Yeah, she's an archaeologist, and and we had a fascinating discussion. See if you can tell where the conversation took an interesting turn. You have to be listening very, very carefully. You might not catch it. Anyway, we're just smiling here, but it was, it was so fascinating. And if you want to read more, Jody's published a bunch of books, one of which is The Archaeology of Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. If that means nothing to you, it'll mean something to you by the end. And also a wonderful uh, uh, title, Stone and Dung, Oil and Spit. Jewish Daily Life in the Time of Jesus, which is one of her areas of expertise. So, we had a great time talking with her, and uh, enjoy the episode. Both archaeologists and historians study the past. The difference is the sources of information that we use to derive information about the past. Historians focus on written sources, things people wrote down and left behind. Archaeology is the study of human material culture. Anything that people manufactured and left behind, and then we dig up out of the ground, that's what archaeologists study. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. How did I get into archaeology? I wanted to be an archaeologist since I was 12 years old. Thanks to a 7th grade teacher, uh, history teacher. We learned about the ancient world, and I fell in love with ancient Greece. My interest ever since then was in the classical world. It was at about that time that I was finding fossils of shells at Girl Scout camp. And anyway, it all came together. Oh and ever since I was 12, I wanted to be an archaeologist. And my interest focused on the classical world, meaning the Greek and Roman world. I ended up doing my bachelor's degree in archaeology at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. So eventually, I became specialized in the archaeology of Palestine, meaning the archaeology of the area of modern Israel, uh, Jordan and the Palestinian territories in the Roman, uh, Byzantine, and early Islamic periods, and that's that's what I do. So uh, that's interesting. You went to Hebrew University as an undergraduate. What made you go over? Yeah, this? Just to be, just uh, I don't to be know how Holy much time Land you want to spend. We need a whole other section on my on my personal history. But um, <laughs> I actually moved to Israel on my own, not with my family, when I was uh, sixteen years old. To finish high school there. Okay. And I had been on a summer tour in Israel the summer I was 15 years old, and I fell in love with it, decided I wanted to go back, spent a year persuading my parents to let me do it. And okay. and, and so, finished high school there, and then I already knew I wanted to, to study archaeology. So, I applied to some universities in the U.S., but also Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and decided I wanted to stay in Israel and, and did my bachelor's degree there. And then I ended up living there afterwards for some more years, so I I have kind of a long history wow. in Israel, yes. Yeah, that's quite a journey. So, but then how did you then bring your interest of New Testament or the rise of Christianity, I guess, into that? Is it sort of more, um, 
a subset for you of of Greek and Roman archaeology? Well, yeah, that's really an interesting question. So my I ended up eventually, so I did my bachelor's degree, I, I did a double major in archaeology and history at the Hebrew University, and then I did a PhD in classical archaeology, again, Greek and Roman archaeology at the University of Pennsylvania, and then, you know, after that I taught at Tufts University for 10 years, and I taught in the in the Department of Classics there. I taught classical archaeology. But in O2, I was offered uh, this wonderful position that, I, that I've had since then at, at UNC Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, in the Department of Religious Studies. And my position here at UNC is not an archaeology position. It's a position in early Judaism, which means Judaism in the time of Jesus. And when I was interviewing for the job, I was telling my, these, you know, my colleagues, I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not trained in religious studies or in early Judaism, you realize I'm an archaeologist, right? And they're like, no, that's okay. We know what you do. That's fine. <laughs> so, I <laughs> so, I ended up in a department of religious studies in a position of early Judaism, and I actually have to teach courses in the subject, so I had to become familiar with it. And so, one of the consequences of that was that my, my you know, as a result of having to become familiar with it and teach it, my research also was impacted by focusing on basically what is Judaism in the time of Jesus in the Holy Land. And um, in fact, the reason why I was hired into this position is think sort of biblical archaeology, right? Archaeology, time of Jesus, Holy Land, Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, which I had been work, you know, doing some work on the site where the scrolls were found. That's actually what happened. And so, my, my original focus was not at all on anything having to do with Jesus or the New Testament or anything like that. So, Let's let's back up because you know we're talking we're throwing out terms religious studies archaeology right. and things. Yes. things. let's just what what is archaeology like? What do archaeologists yeah. do? Lay it out for us. Yeah, that's right. Because in fact, when I interviewed for the position here at UNC, and I was in this room with all the you know members of the faculty of the department. Uh, and and one of them, a senior colleague, kept insisting that I was an historian. And I kept saying, no, I'm not an historian. I'm an archaeologist. And he said, no, you're an historian. <laughs> so, from the point of view of somebody in religious studies, anybody who studies the past is an historian by definition. But from the point of view of an archaeologist, they're not the same thing. So, both archaeologists and historians study the past. The difference is the sources of information that we use to derive information about the past. So, historians focus on written sources, right? Things people wrote down and left behind, you know, historical sources. Whereas archaeology is the study of human material culture, by which I mean anything that people manufactured and left behind, and then we dig up out of the ground, that's what archaeologists study. So, think buildings, tombs, uh, pottery, you know, tools, whatever whatever we dig up and find that, that people actually manufactured, we study that to learn about their lifestyles, their beliefs, and so on and so forth. Uh, and by the way, so therefore, archaeology does not include the study of human or animal bones. Those are separate fields. Uh, they're related, but they're separate fields of, of study. Um, you know, radiocarbon dating, which is, you know, mm. a method that we use to date, that's not technically uh, what archaeologists do. That's done by specialists. So, so it's, that's what archaeology is. So, does it also include, let's say, you know, a slab of stone or clay that has some writing on it, would that be sort of in the purview of archaeology, or is that more of a textual historian's kind of purview? Yeah, that's that's actually really interesting. So, um, when, I, when I tell people about, you know, so how do archaeologists date what we dig up out of the ground, right? Uh, and there are various ways of dating what we dig up. And uh, one way is if you're lucky enough to find an inscription, something that has, you know, writing on it. And so, that could fall into either category, right? It could fall into the category of being an archaeological find, but then it has a written text, which, depending on what it is, could be an historical text, right? So, yeah, it's something like, so, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls were technically, I guess, an archaeological find, but they're actually documents, ancient documents that are studied by specialists in that field. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, but you mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I think that's going to come up, that, that has to come up when we're talking about archaeology and, and the history of, uh, you know, the Judaism of Jesus's day. So, can you say a little bit more about what the Dead Sea Scrolls are 
just the history of the Dead Sea Scrolls and their their rediscovery in the in the 20th century. And also century. archaeologically. Yeah. Right, yeah. Just the history of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, well. That's all. Well, just, I'll, yeah, I'll just kind of bring this up to speak because I think that's a concept that maybe people, I'm sure no, people I, have heard, I, but don't know anything about. Absolutely. And you have 30 that's seconds. Absolute, you're, no, yeah, <laughs> you're absolutely right. I, I mean, I think almost everybody has heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I think a lot of people don't understand exactly what they are. So, the Dead Sea Scrolls are ancient documents dating to about the time of Jesus. They're scrolls. They're written on parchment, which means processed animal hide, that were found in caves near an, near an ancient site called Qumran, which is located on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. Those scrolls were found in 11 different caves surrounding the site of Qumran, and altogether, the remains of approximately a thousand different scrolls were found in those 11 caves. For the most part, what we have are small fragments surviving from what were originally complete scrolls because over the course of the centuries they deteriorated. Those scrolls were deposited in the caves by people who lived at the site of Qumran. And most scholars, including myself, identify the people who lived at Qumran as members of a Jewish sect called the Essenes who are contemporary with the time of Jesus, who have very distinctive beliefs, had very distinctive beliefs and, and worldviews and practices. And they're the ones who collected the scrolls. They didn't write them all by any means, but they're the ones who collected the scrolls. Apparently, some members of this sect copied some of the scrolls and eventually deposited those scrolls in the caves surrounding Qumran. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls represent this corpus of literature that belonged to members of this sect and were deposited in the caves. And this corpus of literature is a corpus of Jewish religious works. They're all Jewish religious works of literature, by which I mean copies of books of the Hebrew Bible or what you might call the Old Testament, works that are related to biblical uh, literature, like commentaries on biblical books or translations of them into Aramaic, and there are also biblical books, or I should, I should say Jewish religious works, that were not included in the Jewish canon of sacred scripture. Some of them may have been included in the Catholic Bible, for example, the Book of Tobit or Ecclesiasticus, which are found also at Qumran among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there are, represented among the Dead Sea Scrolls, works that we call sectarian, by which I mean works that were written by members of this sect, not necessarily at Qumran, but works that were written by members of this sect, which describe their distinctive beliefs and, and practices and worldviews. And those would include works like the Damascus document, the community rule, um, the, temp the uh, war scroll, maybe the temple scroll. So that's the short answer. Yeah, and then maybe can you, because there were, I, I just think that had an impact when those were discovered. Can, can you talk about the discovery of this? Sure. The, so the initial discovery, the, the, the very first scrolls were discovered in Cave 1, the, what we call Cave 1, in the winter-spring of 1946-1947. They were discovered by accident when a Bedouin, that is a local nomad, wandered into this cave and discovered a row of tall pottery jars covered with bowl-shaped lids and, and called other members of his tribe, and they opened up the, the jars and found that most of them were empty, but at least some of them contained scrolls. And eventually, the Bedouin removed seven complete or nearly complete scrolls from this cave, Cave 1 at Qumran, which then eventually, there's a long story, but eventually ended up being purchased legally by the state of Israel, and those are the scrolls that are now on display in the Israel Museum, the Shrine of the Book in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And the so when these and and so it wasn't long after that 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 uh, archaeologists put together an expedition to see if there were any more scrolls in the caves around Qumran and uh, you know eventually after expo further exploration by archaeologists and the Bedouin who continued to look for scrolls eventually a corpus of the remains of approximately a thousand different scrolls came to light you know in these eleven caves around Qumran the initial discovery occurred against the background of the end of the British Mandate in Palestine and the partition of Palestine. And by the time this archaeological expedition was organized to Qumran, which was in the early 1950s, Palestine had been partitioned, and Qumran was under the rule of the government of Jordan. 
The expedition to Qumran then was conducted under the auspices of the government of Jordan, and it was led by a French biblical scholar named Roland Devaux, who was based at the Dominican École Biblique et Archéologique Française de Jerusalem, the French School of Biblical Studies and Archaeology in Jerusalem, uh, and he himself was, was a priest uh, affiliated with uh, the Dominican order. And the team of scholars that this archaeologist, Roland Devaux, put together consisted entirely of, of white men who were Protestant or Catholic and were from uh, Europe, Western Europe primarily, and the United States. And their interest when these first scrolls were discovered, because, you know, the scrolls we knew, they knew already, they determined, dated to about the time of Jesus, their interest was what did the the scrolls tell us about Jesus, right? What what light do they shed on Jesus and on his teachings and the gospel accounts? And so very early on, the, the emphasis, you know, in terms of the interest in the Dead Sea Scrolls was, well, they have, you know, what do they tell us about Jesus? And I think that's why even until today, when people hear Dead Sea Scrolls, they, they you know, there's a lot of public interest because people mm-hmm. think that they have something to do with Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's actually not the case. Mm-hmm. They have they have nothing to do with Jesus directly, and maybe only a little to do indirectly. Well, they, they purportedly revolutionize our understanding of Jesus, which is, you know, sort of a marketing-based exaggeration. Well, I don't actually think they revolution. Yeah. I, it's I don't think it's accurate to say that they revolutionized our understanding of Jesus. What they did do is, in a way, I guess revolutionized is a little bit of a strong word, but, you know, they certainly transformed or enhanced or added to or changed whatever our understanding of Judaism in the time of Jesus. Yes, right. By shedding light on a Jewish group that we knew very little about and only from, you know, indirect or outside sources to this point. Now we have, you know, uh, more direct information on them. And by way of extension then, Tell us about Jesus in his Jewish context. All right. So, yeah. So, that gets us into, I think, an important topic, which is, I guess, the limitations of the field of archaeology and also the information we have about, you know, telling us things about Jesus directly, right? So, so what's talk about those limitations a little bit, because that's really important, because sometimes people quickly think well, this proves this or this proves that or the right. other thing, and that's yeah. really hard to think that way. Right. So, so the first thing that I think people have to understand is, you know, a lot of people think that archaeology is this science, which, which archaeology is a science, by the way. I, I consider myself to be a scientist. It's not an exact science. And the reason why it's not an exact science is because in the exact sciences or the hard sciences, whatever you want to call them, The point is to conduct an experiment that you can replicate. And in archaeology, you cannot replicate the the experiment because in a hard scientific discipline, you replicate this this experiment to get the data, right, to answer your question. In archaeology, the data consists of what we dig up out of the ground. Mm -hmm. And once you've dug whatever it is you're digging out of the ground, you can never put it back the way it was. You've destroyed the evidence as you dig it out of the ground, which is why archaeologists try to record every single thing that we do as we're digging and then publish it as fully as possible afterwards because the data are gone once once yes. we've conducted the excavation. And so this means that, that archaeology is not an exact science and it is filled with interpretation. So people also think that archaeology is objective, right? That it pro- provides objective data. The archaeology does not. Um, everything that, that we as archaeologists do is is a matter of interpretation. And that's why there are so many disagreements and debates among archaeologists, because it comes down to how you interpret the data. And so I think that this is the first thing that people need to realize about archaeology. Yeah. And uh, and and another thing, and this ha- this is true also, by the way, of hard sciences. Hard sciences are also interpretive, right? There's there's a process of interpretation, but also there's, and this is true of hard sciences. Archaeology is not equipped to answer every kind of question that we have about the past. It has limitations. It can answer certain types of questions, but it can't answer other types of questions. So, just to give you an, an example, I I published in 2019 a trade book on Masada. And what everybody wants to know about Masada, which is this fort, the fortress, fortified mountain that was built by Herod the Great in the first century BC, and then uh, fell to the Romans 
70 years later at the time of the first Jewish revolt against the Romans, and we have a source, the Jewish historian Josephus, who tells us that all the Jewish rebels holding out on top of the mountain um, at the end of the Roman siege committed mass suicide. So they wouldn't, you know, they, they wouldn't be taken alive by the Romans. So what everybody wants to know is whether archaeology confirms that there was a mass suicide or not. And the, the problem is, is that that's not a question that archaeology is equipped to answer. Archaeology can tell us that there was a Roman siege, and it, it actually, we can see very clearly how the Romans conducted their siege at Masada. But there's no way that archaeology can tell us whether everyone at the end committed mass suicide or not. So archaeology is about, first of all, understanding that it's a, that it's a matter of interpretation, that there are limitations to to what archaeology can tell us about the past, and that means that you have to ask the right questions of archaeology. Mm -hmm. So, this goes back to your, your point about Jesus. So, I think probably a lot of your listeners, and, you know, the public in general, they always want to know, well, what, what you know, what what remains do we have associated with Jesus, right? What do we what do we have, right? People want to know about, you know, there's always these questions about the Holy Grail or, mm -hmm. you know, the Shroud of Turin or <laughs> whatever it is, right? So they want to they want to know. And and the problem is is that for the most part individuals throughout time have not left identifiable archaeological remains. So, uh usually the only kind of individuals who leave traces in the archaeological record that we can identify with a specific individual, usually those are the really, really powerful and rich people, if you think like King Herod the Great, right? So, he built all over the country, and we have the palaces that he built, and, you know, we have a we have an inscription, by the way, an ancient inscription from Caesarea Maritima, which is one of the big cities that Herod built on, on the coast of the Mediterranean. We have an inscription there that, of that was dedicated by Pontius Pilate, mm. right? So, we have an actual physical inscription that says this is a, you know, a, a temple, a shrine dedicated to, to the Emperor Tiberius by Pontius Pilate, who was prefect of Judea, right? We have that. But, but for the most part, the vast majority of people um, were not these very rich, very prominent, very powerful people. They were, you know, much you know, poorer, and I don't want to say they were destitute, but they were, you know, the lower classes, um, they were not the elite, and they generally don't leave identifiable traces. I don't want to say identifiable traces in the archaeological record that we can identify with a specific individual, right? Mm -hmm. So, to give you an example, we have Galilean houses. We have ancient houses from the time of Gal from the time of Jesus in villages around Galilee, including at Capernaum, which was the base of Jesus's Galilean ministry on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We have houses in that village from that period. Do we have a house that we can identify as, you know, Jesus slept here, right? That, that, <laughs> well, well, we don't, unless, unless we found an authentic ancient inscription from the time of Jesus that says, this is where Jesus slept, there's no way we can determine that. And the same thing, for example, with the Holy Grail, right? The, the cup that Jesus drank out of. Well, maybe we actually found that cup. How would we know? Right. How would you know that it's that cup and not another, right? Unless there was something that, from that time, not that somebody came along later and wrote on it, oh, you know, we think Jesus drank out of this cup, or they claim. So, so that's why, um, that, that's why, really, we have nothing that, that we can, archaeologically, that we can associate with, with Jesus as an individual in the archaeological record. Now, we do have things like the site where he is thought to where his body is thought to have been laid to rest right after he died because that site was venerated later by Christians and and a big church was built around it the church of the holy sepulcher in Jerusalem even there there's a problem because it wasn't until 300 years after the time of Jesus that that church was built yes. so you have to take it as a matter of faith that the christian community preserved the memory of that authentic spot for the intervening 300 years right so you know we don't we don't really have the the sort of artifacts you know the tangible pieces of something that Jesus ate out of or right. drank out of or slept on or whatever we don't we don't have that at least not that we can identify in the archaeological record. What we do have, and, I, and I'm always, you know, I'm consulted by lots of television documentary programs, you know, that, that do this sort of stuff. And they're always, you know, they want to talk about, you know, the, the Holy Grail or the Shroud of Turin or whatever. And what I try to explain is, yeah, we don't have those sorts of tangible artifacts. But what we do have, and this is really important and valuable, is 
a lot of information about the world of Jesus. We know what Galilean villages looked like in his period. We know how the people lived. We know what a, a house looked like. So even if we don't have the house, we can't identify the exact house that Jesus slept in. We know what a house like that would have looked like. We know what Jerusalem looked like in the final days of Jesus. Um, we know what the temple in Jerusalem looked like. So we can reconstruct with a pretty fair degree of accuracy the world of Jesus, even if we can't identify a specific artifact associated with him. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. And that's a very, very important distinction to make, and one that can be lost, I think, very easily. So, what what are some things that you sort of get all happy about, talking about, you know, the archaeology of the time that helps us understand something of the backdrop or the world of Jesus, or the things that, you know, would be of interest to people listening, just things we can talk about and point to that help us understand what was it like to be alive during the days of Jesus? So, one of the things, it's really interesting that you say this. I almost was going to go off on it, and I'm not going to do it unless you really want me to. <laughs> one of my, one of my uh, you know, I have a lot of little subfields of interest, and one of them is, this is going to, you're going to crack up, one of them is ancient toilets. <laughs> Perfect. That's it. Yeah. And, I and did not expect habits, that. Right? Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, because, because everybody can relate, right? Everybody wonders, what did they do back then, right? And that's been one of the things, because there's a connection with with Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's kind of how it I've got. I've never once thought know, of how Jesus went to the bathroom, by the way. I probably should have, well, you but know, I've there's, never there's, thought. I'm too textual. It doesn't, right, it doesn't right. say that so, in the gospel, so, so right. who cares, so, right? So, you know, this is archaeology, right? You're getting into sort of like <laughs> right. the nitty-gritty of everyday life, right? So, what was that world like? So, before maybe if, I mean, depending on the time we go off on onto toilets, <laughs> one of the things that I always like to say is that if we could be retrojected back 2,000 years in time, 
we would be, first of all, we would be overwhelmed by what I call the odorama. <laughs> it was it was gross. I mean, by our standards, right? It was gross. Um, it was filthy. It was dirty. It was smelly, um, especially in a place like Judea, which is pretty dry and you don't have like lots of running water, you know, and things like that. It was, it was you know, anyway, we can go into toilet practices if you want after this, but um, but that's, that's one thing. And I also like to say that we would all be dead within a week mm. because we would not have immunity to the diseases, right? So, if you survived in that world to adulthood, you would have developed immunity to, you know, to most of the diseases, although even so, there was a very, you know, high rate of mortality even among adults and, you know, people didn't live much beyond their 30s, right? Most people. Um, even at the highest levels of society, if you think about Augustus, right, the Roman Emperor Augustus um, was predeceased by every single person who he had, who he was supposed to, you know, have succeed him. So even in the imperial family in Rome, the mortality rate was was high because everybody lived in those conditions. And so I think that's that's one of the things. And the other thing is, you know, we talk about there's a lot of. Uh, debate about, you know, how poor was Jesus's family, right? And this connects also with, with the whole story about the burial. But, you know, were they, were they really poor or were they not so poor? Were they kind of middle class? And, and here I think people have to realize that, uh, that, that, that the distinctions that we make today don't re- aren't really accurate for, for that world. That what you had in that world was a, a very small minority of people who were at a, at a very high level of society, had most of the wealth, and then uh, pretty much everybody else. And pretty much everybody else was living just above the subsistence level. So they weren't destitute. They had, you know, they had village houses or, or town, you know, houses in towns or villages. They had professions, so either they were craftsmen or they were fishermen or they, you know, they were farmers. But they lived just above the subsistence level, which means they basically got by with just enough to support themselves. But in a period of, let's say, prolonged drought or something like that, they could very easily go under. And then you have underneath that a very, you know, a stratum of people who were really, truly destitute. So by today's standards, by our modern Western American standards, those vast majority of the population would look poor by our standards. But but. By the standards of that time, they were the, that's the way the majority of the people lived. And I think that's one thing that's really important to understand about, about Jesus and, and his context. Mm-hmm. Well, what about, uh, I mean, things that I think about is, I mean, we're talking about toilets, but things like maybe <laughs> like food preparation, how, how right. did they eat? You know, uh, did they go out? <laughs> <laughs> did they go to the Taco Bell? Did they kill uh, things? Did they just make bread or something? You know, I mean, how little things like that that we take for granted, obviously, in our existence, we we can't really impose upon these ancient stories. And is, are there any insights from archaeology about that? Yeah, there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and there's tons of. So one of my. So again, you know, we all have fields of specialization, and over my career, I've developed a number of them, but my original field of specialization was ancient pottery. Uh, that's what I wrote my dissertation on. And then that relates, because, you know, uh, one of, I, probably the most common type of artifact that, that we dig up in archaeological excavations in Israel is pottery, because even if it breaks into pieces, it, it's virtually indestructible, it survives, whereas a lot of other stuff does not. And you know, archaeologists use pottery to help us date what we dig up. And there's a complex process involved in how archaeology is used for dating. I won't won't go into it. But besides being used for dating, pottery is important because it tells us things like trade, about trade. So, if you see different pottery types that were manufactured in different areas, you know, and they're, they're found at a distance, it tells us about context between, you know, different peoples or different areas. But also, the types of pottery tell us about how people prepared their food, and how they served it, and how they dined. And if you think for a minute, it's very logical. So, for example, if you go to a a Chinese restaurant today, right, their kitchen is going to be equipped with very different kinds of pots and pans than you would find in, let's say, I don't know, my house at least, right? And the table will be set. It will have different kinds of, of dishes and, and eating implements, dining implements, than let's say again that, that most of us would use in our homes in, in North America, right? So the the way that food is prepared and served tells you a lot about what people were eating 
right? And how they were eating it. And also, were they eating it communally or were they eating it individually? So are they serving it out of big pots that everybody's helping themselves out of? You know, that sort of thing. And so we actually have a lot of information about that. And I, I published a paper this year talking about a particular kind of cooking vessel. It's like a shallow casserole. So if you think of kind of like a, almost like a frying pan, but instead of having a long handle, it has two little loop handles on either side, uh, something like that. This kind of, of, of pan, almost like flat-bottomed, um, made out of pottery, made out of ceramic, becomes very popular in Galilee, not in Judea, not in Jerusalem, but in Galilee, beginning around the time of Jesus. And it's connected with the introduction of a new type of very popular dish into Galilee that was very popular among the Romans, and that is quiches and frittatas, what are, what are called patinas and patellas in, in Latin. So basically, you, you, you beat up an egg mixture, and you mix it up with, you, you pour it into a pan with like chopped up fish or vegetables or, or meat or fruit or whatever, and then you either bake it or you uh, cook it over a fire, right? So that's that, right? So this becomes very popular in Galilee, uh, ubiquitous, and it, and it remains popular for centuries after the time of Jesus at Jewish sites around Galilee, which indicates that in the time of Jesus, a lot of Jews started to eat these Roman-style quiches and frittatas. So Jesus apparently probably did too. Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, what do we have to go on textually in, in the New Testament? Not an awful lot. Like, basically bread. That's it, right? But this is, you know, he probably ate more than just that. And, and for, what, what are they called again? Well, <laughs> quiches and frittatas. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, quiches and frittatas are not mentioned in the no, New Testament. No, they're not. They're right not. About that, what, but, a, what a rip um, off that is. But, uh, right. But no, no, I think, I mean, you look, the, the, basic, the basic food groups um, of this part of the world, right, by which I mean, you know, Galilee, Judea, in, in the time of Jesus, which was the basic food groups for, for millennia, included olive oil, which was used not just for cooking, but also for dipping your bread in, right? And you mentioned bread, so that was certainly. And some sort of, you could have bean, bean mixture, lentils, you know, something like that, some sort of a dip or something like that that you would also eat with your bread. Um, and then if you were lucky, you would, you would add to that, you know, maybe some vegetables or maybe some meat or chicken or fish if you were lucky. But those were really the basic items. And, um, and the fact that you begin to find this kind of pottery associated with the preparation of quiches and frittatas suggests that they must have been, these villagers must have also been raising chickens, right? Mm. And, then, and then taking these very basic food items, whether it's, you know, they could get their hands on some fish or pieces of vegetable or whatever, and chopping that up and mixing it up with the eggs, you know, over the fire or in the oven. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I really appreciate about a conversation like this, and Pete, you kind of hinted at it around what's in the New Testament, is sometimes I, I know a religious tradition for me growing up, we sort of have this trans-historical view of people during that time. It almost takes on this like fairy tale, and it's like if it's not in the Bible, it didn't exist. So they had this very two-dimensional flat existence that only included stories like what we find in the Bible. And so, I just appreciate the the relatability of seeing the broader landscape of everyday life is what's happening. You know, they're, they're using the toilet, they're eating, they're, things that seem so obvious, but <laughs> until we talk about it, it sort of breaks down some of these barriers that I think I unintentionally have between what was going on back then and life today. Right, right. And and by the way, speaking of, so I just have to say about toilets. <laughs> you really so, want to talk about toilets, don't you? I do want okay. to talk about toilets. So uh, it's one of my favorite topics. Um, but, uh, you know, again, it's something that everybody can relate to, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, hopefully. If hopefully. you can't relate to it, you're not a <laughs> yeah, right. living human being. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know. So there were different kinds of toilet facilities in, in the ancient world. So the, the most in, in a slightly later period, we begin to see what are called Roman luxury latrines, which are these, which are usually attached to bathhouses and consist of a room with, with water circulating in an underground channel um, below a row of seats that line the walls of that room. Very sophisticated kind of technology, not relevant if we're talking about the time of Jesus and, and Galilee in that period, or even Jerusalem in that period. So what you basically have are either something that you might think of as analogous to an outhouse in a way, basically a cesspit. 
that would be dug into the floor of a room and then covered with a stone or wooden seat. And and those are usually found only in fairly affluent houses. And I don't know of any like that from the time of Jesus in Galilee. But, you know, in Pompeii, for example, a lot of the houses have that kind of toilet facility. And so then that leaves the question of, well, what did everybody else do? And so for the most part, people, when they were inside a house that didn't have a built toilet facility, they would use the analogy as a, um, uh, a uh, chamber pot right? They would take a a broken jar or something like that, use that like a chamber pot. And then the contents of chamber pots were tossed out outside the house onto the streets. So if you're in villages, the the streets and alleys tended to be pretty disgusting, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was true even in even in sophisticated cities like, like Pompeii. But it, the difference is, is that in places like Pompeii, they had these fountains with water being brought in, you know, by aqueduct that uh, would overflow the water from the fountains would overflow the fountains and and onto the streets and wash the waste away whereas in villages and most towns you didn't have that kind of arrangement and the other thing that i found in doing my research on toilets is that so what if you're like outside the house and you know you're just out and you have to go right and what do you do um apparently a lot of people just went anywhere i mean literally anywhere and i found examples of shops in Pompeii, where the shopkeepers wrote on the outside of the shop, don't go here, <laughs> basically, and all sorts of Roman laws that legislate, you know, trying to prevent people from going in, in various public places. I got into this because at Qumran, with the, the, the community that lived at Qumran, the, you know, who I think are Essenes, um, who deposited the scrolls in the nearby caves, they have toilet habits uh, that are a little different from everybody else's at that time. They have a concern with toilet what we might call toilet privacy. They didn't. They they didn't go in public. They they found remote sheltered spots to go, and they covered themselves up with a cloak so they couldn't be seen while they were. We're only talking about uh, number two here, not number <laughs> one. So defecation, mm-hmm. not urination. So they have that. And the other thing that makes them different, and here we unfortunately won't have time to go into it, but they're different from everybody else. This this group, the Essenes. Because unlike everybody else, including other Jews, they believed that defecation was a ritually polluting activity, that it made you ritually impure, whereas other oh. Jews did not believe that. And and there's actually this passage where in, in the Gospels where Jesus is responding to critics by saying, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you, that Clean, makes you yeah. impure, it's what comes out, yeah. right? Um, and then he, he, there's an addition and it says, it's not, it, it's what comes, it's not what comes out of you and goes into the sewer, uh, right? Not, it's not what goes into your stomach and then comes out of you and goes into the sewer that makes you impure. It's, it's you know, evil thoughts and, right, all that other stuff. And, you know, maybe that may be, it's hard to say, right? But maybe that was, that, that was expressing a position on, you know, because among the different Jewish groups, clearly there was disagreement about whether uh, excrement is impure or not, yeah. right? Ritually impure. And and it may be that that in that passage, Jesus was expressing an opinion, and his opinion was that it's not ritually impure, okay. if, that's, if that's the case. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, first of all, thank you for ruining the Gospels for me, because now I'm going to be reading them wondering when they took a bathroom break and what they did. So, um, But of course, that's all about maturity and, and spiritual maturity. Anyway, so okay, I hesitate to ask. I'm not trying to be funny here, but toilet paper. 
Ah, uh, no, there was no toilet no, paper. Just sort of right. air dry, huh? No, oh yeah. So I don't know how. Yeah, if you really want to get into the nitty gritty. So in um, hey, this is the common denominator <laughs> of all of humanity for all of time. Of course, why it not is. talk about this? Right. So, um, by the way, so you know, there are still there are still large parts of the world where you know you can see sort of uh, toilet practices that are pretty much the same as they were in antiquity. But anyway, um, in in a Roman luxury latrine. Which, which is not what we're talking about for Jesus in Galilee, but in a Roman luxury latrine, at the base of the seats that lined the room, you would have a channel, and it would have water in it, and what the Romans used to, to wipe themselves off in, in that kind of a latrine was a sponge on a stick, and so you would have this sponge on a stick, and you would take, you know, when you sat down on the seat, you would then pick up the sponge on the stick and you would use it to wipe yourself. And then when you were done, you put it back for the next person to use. Okay, I was going to say, I, I hope they dropped that in the <laughs> hole, but I guess not. But, okay. But wait, but that's that's actually in the best case scenario. Because, you know, for the most part, if you're just out, you know, like using a chamber pot or, you know, wherever, not not kind of, a, or, you know, even a a built cesspit kind of a toilet in in a house or something like that. There is no toilet paper, so you you know they may have used things like leaves or or actually there's a reference in in rabbinic literature, Jewish rabbinic literature, to using stones to wipe yourself off. But even until today, there are uh, parts of the world where you you do not use like I've been to India. This is the case. You do not use your left hand. Um, for things like uh, making an offering in a temple. Or in the ancient world, you did not eat with your, your left hand. You only ate with your right hand, and that's because the left hand was used to wipe yourself. I do you, know, well, you know, you this is interesting. It really is. And um, <laughs> the next time somebody says to me, I'd love to live in biblical times, I'm going to tell them to listen to this episode Especially the second half, and that will cure you of this. That in dentistry. But this is why, this is why I said that you know, if we could be transported back two thousand years, we would be bowled over by the odorama, and we would be dead with you know the diseases and yeah. the water. I mean, especially in a place like Judea, where you know that area around Jerusalem, which is doesn't get rain, you know, half of the year. Um, the water sources were, you know, would be, I mean, we would be dead yeah. from, from trying to live in that environment, right. right? It's the same reason why you go to parts of the world today and you have to avoid drinking the local water. Um, you have to get immunized with all sorts of, you know, immunizations before you leave exactly that same sort of thing. Well, before we, before we end this conversation... Um, <laughs> I mean, I hate to take us mercifully end this. I take, I, I hate to take us too far afield um, from this conversation, but just as we as we wrap up, you know, what are some? What's maybe one thing or or a couple of things that that you wish people would know or or put into practice um, based on your experience as an archaeologist here? Yeah. Well, thank you for asking. You know, I I think that what what people have to People have to realize that anything associated, any archaeological, anything archaeological associated with Jesus is going, any claim is going to be sensational, right? In other words, any 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 archaeological claim that is made in connection with Jesus is going to get a lot of attention. So, what people need to realize is that they have to be careful when they hear claims in the media that, you know, something has been found that that verifies or validates or whatever, either, you know, connected with Jesus or connected with somebody in the circle of Jesus, which is not to say that every such claim is necessarily false, but that not all claims are true or not all claims are equally valid. And this goes back to, you know, one of the things, of course, that as a, as a uh, university professor, you know, I'm so concerned to teach, and that is critical thinking. And, you know, one of the great values of the internet is that it has democratized information, right? It used to be that the only way to get your hands on information was to walk into a physical library building and, and look things up. And now, you know, at the click of a mouse, you can just find stuff online. And what I, what I always try to explain to my students is, you know, anybody can put up anything online. And, and you don't know, you know, who that individual is or where that information is coming from. And so, you, you, it's really important, especially if you're interested in learning about, you know, archaeology and, and the historical Jesus, it's really important to um, understand and evaluate the trustworthiness of, of the sources of information and, uh, and not necessarily, you know, believe every claim that, that gets 
publicity because, again, the, the most sensational claims are the ones that, by definition, will get the most publicity. And that's not saying that they're all necessarily false, but they're also not necessarily true. Well, the field of archaeology is more sober than sometimes what lands online or it's in not, newspapers. It's not Indiana Jones? It's not Indiana Jones. No. Well, and, and actually, I'm glad you said that. Because a lot of people think that archaeologists are treasure hunters, like Indiana Jones, and that we get to keep what we find. And that's not what archaeology is about at all. Archaeology is about learning about the past. We're scientists. We seek to learn about the past by digging up remains of human material culture. And the point is, is to have, just like any science, to have research questions that you hope to answer. So it's not a treasure hunt. We don't just randomly dig to find things. Because you know if you dig, you're going to find things. Mm-hmm. The, the, what you want to do is formulate a series of, of questions that you hope to answer and find a, a site that you hope, an archaeological site that will answer those questions if you conduct an excavation there, right? And dig up the data that you hope will answer your questions. So we do not get to keep what we find. We're not, you know, random treasure hunters or anything like that. We're, we're scientists. Right. Well, listen, Jody, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and, and that wonderfully <laughs> unexpected turn that we took. But it's it's great. It, and for helping us understand just, you know, people really lived back then. And they had habits and they had customs and that those things don't come across in texts. They have to come across in some other way typically. And uh, I think, the, you know, we've, we've learned a lot here today. I know our listeners are going to be excited to, to ponder these things. No, thank you. You just made it through another entire episode of The Bible for Normal People. Well done to you. And well done to everyone who supports us by rating the podcast, leaving us a review, or telling others about our show. We are especially grateful for our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we are able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So a big thanks to Chrissy Florence, Eric Haug, Jason Kerrigan, Jonathan Lee, Lori Vocal, Mike Cook, Rob Buckingham, Stephen McConnell, Hannah Siegmund, and Carlos Ochoa. If you would like to help support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be a part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Our show is produced by Stephanie Spate, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, community champion Ashley Ward, and web developer Nick Striegel. Copyright 2021, The Bible for Normal People. All rights reserved. In other words, No coffee or you're in big trouble. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening.